Dr. Judy here. Do you love to read books about dogs on all subjects? I was recently a guest on the podcast Dog-Eared with Lisa Davis, where she interviews authors who write books about dogs, and I highly recommend you check it out. Lisa reads every book cover to cover, and her warm and engaging personality draws out her guests, and the resulting conversation illuminates the book, but without giving away the whole story. Also, I will be on monthly to answer her listeners' questions about natural pet health. So whether you want the latest advice on how to keep your furry friend happy and healthy, training tips, inspirational memoirs, or anything else dog, Dog-Eared is right for you. When I was about eight, my sister was nine, my brother was 12, my mom and dad brought us to a transcendental meditation center. And I I didn't know anything about it. And they put me in this room with this woman. And I don't think she really understood how to work with kids because she said, I'm going to tell you this mantra. I'm going to tell you this word. You can never tell anybody else. Number one, you don't say that to kids and (laughs) secrets. That's a wonderful laugh of the fantastic Sharon Salzberg. I'm going to bring her in in a moment. It kind of freaked me out. And then, but my mom would be like, go to your room and meditate. But like, I didn't really understand it. Now today we're not talking about TM, but we are talking about meditation in general with the woman who really is, is one of the people who brought it to the West. Sharon Salzberg is incredible. She's a New York Times bestseller, uh, Real Happiness, a 28 day program to realize the power of meditation. Sharon, so glad to have you back. Well, thank you so much. I love what you wrote in the introduction. I just thought it was fantastic. All of us instinctively want to be happy, but all too often lasting happiness eludes us. We may cherish an exquisite afternoon, try a new recipe to great success, or dare to imagine a better day, but a steady feeling of self-worth, inner strength, and genuine connection may seem unattainable. This inner struggle is what inspired me to write this book 10 years ago. Let's talk about that because I find myself being super happy when good things happen in my career, good things happen with my daughter or my husband or my friends. But then the rest of the time, I'm kind of blah, (laughs) which I know is no way to live. Well, I mean, the the irony is that even when really good things happen, sometimes we're kind of distracted and we don't fully take them in or sometimes it doesn't meet, you know, as great as it is, it's not meeting like some impossible standard we've set of perfection, which is just not going to happen ever, you know. Uh, There's so many ways we don't even really just absorb and enjoy and take delight in the good things. And then we know, you know, just from life that you could be in adversity and challenge and difficulty, but you don't feel so alone. You feel you can let in the helping hands that may be reaching towards you or, um, you know, you feel like you're a part of a community, even the the human family. and, And it's different, you know, it's still difficult and hurting and all of that, but it's very different than when we had isolation and self-blame and, and all those things. So whether the the moment is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, there's work we can do. Well, that's what I found so exciting. And I do want you to know that after years of my husband being like, "Hun, you got to meditate. You really need to try to meditate. Your book really uh, has pushed me into this. And it's been a couple weeks, and I'm only doing five minutes every few days. But for me, what's nice is I remember when I tried a few years ago, five minutes felt like an hour. And now it really doesn't. So I'm pretty excited, even though I mostly am just like, get back to breathing, stop thinking about that, get back to breathing, stop thinking about that. I know I'm doing something. (laughs) 
No, you absolutely are. Do you set like a timer or something? Yeah, I set a timer. Yeah, I think that's good. Then you don't have to be anxious. Like I'm going to oversit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know you recommend starting with three times a week for 20 minutes. um, But you also said if that's too much, you can work up to it. So that's what I'm going to do. No, I think that's great. And five minutes is really, really good. The reason I sometimes hesitate around five minutes is that for any of us, the first five minutes tend to be the most restless. True. (laughs) You know, so it's like you're getting the hardest part. (laughs) That is true. There's so many great things in the book. One of them that I thought was great in chapter one in What is Meditation? You write, the content and quality of our lives depend on our level of awareness, a fact we are often not aware of. Could you expand on that? I thought that was so fascinating. Well, I think it's it's both the, the quality of our awareness and um, the way we are receiving the experience. You know, we know we can be in a beautiful setting, you know, rainbows and waterfalls and surrounded by loving people, but we're full of self-doubt or uh, we don't feel we deserve the attention and the care or, you know, we're just miserable inside. And so it's not a good experience wherever we are. And we can be in a time of adversity and and feel not so alone or, or feel connected to a, a bigger reality. And and it's not as hard as it might have been by any means. And and so how we pay attention, what we pay attention to, who we pay attention to, think about all the people we look right through. You know, we might encounter every day someone who plays some kind of role in our life, like, you know, dry cleaner, person who works in the grocery store, something like that. And for all we recognize them as a living, breathing human being who wants to be happy just as we do, they might as well be a piece of furniture. And It's really fascinating to me how I keep reading about an epidemic of loneliness and how disconnected increasingly people are feeling. And uh, I think attention plays a, a really vital role in correcting that. I think so, too. And I want to get into the three skills that you talk about to direct our attention. But before that, there was another thing that you said that really jumped out of, at me. Uh, meditation was my way out of fragmentation and emotional pain. I mean, so many people have trauma. And to have a way that you can get in touch with yourself and get deeper within yourself and have that uh ability to really pay attention is huge. Talk to us a little bit about your your past, if you don't mind, and then uh, I want to jump into uh, the skills. Uh, no, I don't mind. I'd had a very, um, like many people, I had a very fractured childhood when I um, was calculating. I, I was looking back to see how many different kinds of households I'd lived in. By the time I went to college at the age of 16, I came up with five in that, you know, I lived with my parents till I was four, and then they got divorced, and I lived with my uh, mother and her two siblings after that, and then my mother died when I was nine. And then, you know, so each change was actually something traumatic. Um, And then I went to college at 16. I went to India at 18. And I think if I was going to describe myself in a single word around the time that I was leaving for India, I would have said fragmented. I didn't have a sense of who I was. I didn't have a sense of a core to me, you know, of of values or of perspective. And it was only for me through the process of meditating that that really came about. 
You know, it was interesting when I read how when you were in India and you told the person that you'd been working with with meditation, you said, I'm going to come back. And she and uh, I believe it was a she or was it a he said, no, you're not. You're going to go back and teach. And yeah, yeah that was a she. <laughs> that was my teacher. Yes. Yeah. What was your initial reaction? Were you like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, no, I was incredulous. Deepama, which is a nickname, it means Deepa's mother, uh, was an extraordinary woman and teacher. Um she herself had gotten into meditation practice because of extreme trauma and and sorrow. She um, and her husband were living in Burma. They're, they're Indian or Bangladeshi, but they were living in, in Burma because he was in the civil service there. And uh, at the time, uh, she had already lost two children. She had one surviving daughter named Deepa, and her husband came home one night he wasn't feeling very well and he died by that night. And so she was completely grief stricken and she developed a heart condition. She couldn't get out of bed. And the doctor came and said to her, you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind. You should learn how to meditate. And she got up, she got out of bed. She still had a daughter to raise and she went to the local meditation temple and, she began to meditate and what happened for her was somehow she metabolized that incredible grief and sorrow into compassion. And she emerged as this incredible loving figure. And she was that way. I mean, I started with many, many kinds of people and, and she was that way with everybody because she knew that life can change on a dime. You know, it, it can really be suddenly upset and, and, she just cared about everybody, and it was a, her greatest strength as a teacher. So she was one of my main teachers, and I had gone to Calcutta to see her, which is where she was living by then. And uh, I just wanted, like, her blessing for what I was sure was my very short journey back to the States before I went back to live in India for the entire rest of my life. And, and she said, well, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And we went back and forth. And when I left her her room up on the fourth floor in that building, I walked down those stairs and I thought, no, I won't. <laughs> that's not going to happen. But sure enough, she was right. Wow, that's incredible. I can't imagine what it must be like to find your life's purpose so young. It was great good luck, you know. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's talk about some of those uh, skills. There's three skills to direct our attention. And again, I want people to get the book, Real Happiness, a 28-day program to realize the power of meditation. So if you just want to just talk a little bit about them. Sure. I mean, I think of meditation as a skills training, and that's how I learned it. You know, not really wedded to a belief system or a certain faith tradition. or um, It can be expressed in the language of many different faith traditions or just science and a uh, kind of human understanding of what could make a happier life. So the first skill is concentration, and that's based on the idea that for most of us, we feel pretty scattered or distracted, maybe not in every arena of life, but at least in some. You know, we sit down to think something through, and we're gone. Or our minds just leap into the past, not in a useful way, but in a pretty useless way. And they say we tend to go over some situation where we now have some regret, but we don't go over it to see how to make amends or for lessons learned. We just go over it and over it and over it and over it. 
and or usually and our minds jump into the future and we're creating a scenario that might not happen and certainly is not happening right now, but we're bearing the burden of it. Like, what if my plane is late? Oh no, it's going to be late. I'm not going to land. You know, like, um, and so what we do in concentration is we gather all that life energy that we've just been throwing all over the place. We gather it back and we have a much greater sense of being centered and, and feeling whole. And then the next skill based on the development of concentration is mindfulness, which is like the word of the hour. You know, it, it, it's used a lot and it means a lot of different things, but I, I tend to use it in a classical sense, which is a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the present moment is not so distorted. So for example, maybe we have something painful going on in our body or heartache or disappointment. And right away we start thinking, what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next month? So not only do we have the very real discomfort, we've now got all that anticipation and we're trying to bear it all at once and we feel just overcome. So we, we can practice mindfulness so that we can distinguish oh, this is what's actually happening, and this is what I'm adding to it through force of habit, anticipation, projection, judgment, whatever it might be, and come back more and more to what's actually happening and have a very different sense of connection with our lives. And then the third skill is compassion. And it begins with self-compassion, because I don't think you could actually do, say, a meditation exercise of any kind without kind of secretly developing some compassion for yourself because the habit of judgment, of self-judgment can be so harsh and so strong. Yeah. And, and to be able to say, let go of a distraction and come back to the original object of meditation, whether it's the feeling of the breath or a mantra or whatever it is, you can't do that if you then spend 45 minutes you know, why was I thinking? No one else in the room is thinking. I'm always, you know, so we have to learn how to let go and begin again and let go and begin again. And in doing that, we're really developing much more kindness to ourselves. And that becomes the basis for compassion for others. We have a different sense of empathy. We have a different awareness of others. We have a different sense of connection. And compassion really readily arises. You know, it's interesting, too, when I was reading about the benefits of meditation, I think a lot of people think, oh, you'll be less stressed and you'll be more relaxed. But I mean, it goes way beyond that. Uh, some of them are you'll stop limiting yourself. You'll weather hard times better. You'll discover a deeper sense of what's really important to you. Uh, one that really jumped out at me is you'll uh, understand how to relate to change better, to accept that it's inevitable and believe that it's possible. And the other one was you'll recapture the energy you've been wasting trying to control the uncontrollable. You know, I have a book out right now and, and I'm trying to get on different shows and some say yes and some say no. But, the you know, it's like, but I, I really want that one. And if I don't get that one, I'm going to be miserable. And blah, blah. But I can't control if they're going to say yes or not. I need and I'm really struggling. Well, it's hard, of course, you know, and the desire is natural. I mean, we're human beings. You know, of course, we, you know, we want you put in all that work and your earnestness and sincerity and, you know, your heartfulness and. And, of course, you want someone to read it, you know. And, <laughs> Good point. Thank uh, you. The thing I have found, though, you know, so much is that something like a book or an effort 
to be kind, anything that a person might do is so often like planting a seed. And sometimes years later, you know, someone will write and say, you know, I read your book. and Or even, you know, what I've heard is, I got your book at the time it came out and I didn't like it much. <laughs> but, you know, now my life has really changed. I lost my job or my mother is sick or I've had this incredible opportunity presented to me and I was kind of nervous about going for it. And I picked up your book and it was perfect. Oh, that's lovely. I can't imagine anyone saying to you they didn't like your book. So thank you. (laughs) You're making that up, right? (laughs) In the science of meditation, you talk about neuroplasticity. We've talked about that a bit on the show, but tell us about that. Well, when I was young, younger, (laughs) you know, when I was in junior high school, say, or, or high school, we were taught that past a certain age, sometime in your 20s, uh, your brain would not change. Your brain matter would not change in the circuitry and, and the matter. And, and unless something terrible happened, you know, and there was some catastrophe and and your brain degenerated in, in some way. But now it's believed that there is neuroplasticity, there is the possibility of regeneration, new connections, um, even new brain matter till the day you die. And so meditation is one of the things that is being researched in terms of neuroplasticity, because here it is, it doesn't take like huge equipment, you know, Um, it's something that's very personal. People can undertake it if they wish. Uh, It's very pragmatic. And interestingly enough, it, it seems to have a great effect on neuroplasticity. Yeah, I really love that. You know, my daughter has ADD and I, it's suddenly, because it's genetic, it suddenly was like, oh my gosh, my childhood makes sense. My husband had the same reaction. Like I could hyper-focus on something I was interested in, but otherwise forget about it, daydreamer, you know, the whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons that I always felt like meditation eluded me. And what was so interesting is you talk about in the book that uh, you say a vast majority of trials do suggest that mindfulness could be a promising method for treating ADHD. And just a funny aside story. Uh, I remember when I was in ninth grade and there was a substitute teacher and out of the blue, he's like, by the way, I analyze people's handwriting. And so like, everyone's like getting in line and I wrote my name and he's looking at the loops of the L's and the, you know, different things. And he looks at me and he says, you can't do homework and listen to the radio at the same time. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he was just, maybe I looked like I had eight. I don't know, but I, that always stuck with me. I thought, wow, this this, hand, this handwriting analysis is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, the thing is, he could have said that to anybody. No, I know. But at the time, you know, being 14, I'm like, wow, this is magic. <laughs> Yeah, well, he was right. You know, like, I think one of the great myths of our time is that if we multitask, we'll get more done and we'll do it well. And studies show we're not getting more done and we're not doing things that well either, you know, so. Yeah, it's true. And I find that I'm really struggling with not checking my phone so much, especially around my book. And, and, you know, if the number went up or down or did someone retweet, like, it's not good. And I'm really, uh, I think that I know that part of the meditation, as I go, I've only, it's only been a few weeks, but. I am being more cognizant of that. One of the things that I, I love, again, in the book, you write, uh, relearning how to concentrate, says writer A-L-A-I-N. 
Dave Bolton, is one of the great challenges of our time. And he, uh, the past decade has seen an unparalleled assault on our capacity to fix our minds steadily on anything. He wrote in the 2010 essay on distraction, to sit still and think without succumbing to an anxious reach for a machine has become almost impossible. I'm like, oh my gosh, he, I know it's not just me. I know so many people like that. It's like an epidemic in our culture now. Well, it really is. There's a, a quotation from a friend of mine that's in the book, uh, Linda Stone, who said, um, in this time, basically, we, we pay continuous partial attention. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yes, yeah, so we're very torn, we're fragmented. We don't have a feeling of fulfillment very often. And so, I mean, it takes some discipline. It doesn't have to be harsh discipline, but it's like a game, you know. It's like saying, I'm not going to check my phone for four hours let's say, and I'm going to notice, I'm going to pay attention and just be mindful of the impulse, the fear, you know, what if something happens, just whatever may come up. Uh, it's just like the, the, the resolve is setting the stage. It's creating the frame and we get to see the play of our minds and everything that comes up and, and hopefully with kindness toward ourselves instead of judgment. Um, you know, the urge, the restlessness, and then the relaxation is we let it go. And, you know, so many different things will happen and we use it as a vehicle for awareness. And I'm just the kind of person who's really helped by structure, which is why I like like the 28 day program, you know, or the resolve to sit five minutes a day, three times a week or something like that, because it just helps me. Um, to really get something done. You know, if I, if I was more like, oh, sometime this week it would be good to meditate, you know, it'll be Monday and I'll think, well, maybe a Wednesday, you know, that Wednesday's a good day to start. Wednesday would come and I think, you know what, I'll just give it Saturday. I'll do it all day <laughs> Saturday and I just never do it. Right. You know, but if I know, okay, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to, I'm going to do five minutes that, that would happen. Right. And you have to schedule it. Or again, like, so it's just going to fall by the wayside. And, and it's really interesting because it is like an epidemic. You know, if you sit in a, you might be sitting in this beautiful hotel lobby and gorgeous and nobody is like looking at where they are, you know, <laughs> everybody's on their phone. And it's not like an onerous environment you're trying to avoid, <laughs> you know, you need to avoid. It's like, Oh, it's beautiful here. Let's appreciate it. I want to talk about, uh, you have Getting Ready, Some Practical Preparation. Again, people, you've got to get this book, Real Happiness, Sharon Salzberg. But let's talk about this. Let's talk about getting yourself prepared. First section is about developing concentration, and there are different alternatives to try out for that, and then mindfulness of the body, and then mindfulness of emotions, and then the last section is loving kindness. So uh, you can be practicing all along, actually, if you want. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to, again, you know, I'm very served by structure. So I would say, uh, make a resolve, you know, it's going to be five minutes at a time for th three days and sort of figure out which days, you know? Um, and I think it's really good to sit down with some sense of what method you want to pursue. Maybe it's awareness of the breath or. Uh, and there's also walking meditations and things like that. So it doesn't have to be sitting, but that's the nature of the experiment. Let's say you're, you're sitting. I think it's really good to have a timer, like I said, because 
Otherwise, you know, you freak out and you keep looking at your watch. And what time is it now? And surely more than a minute has passed. And, you know, <laughs> so, like you know, you're safe. You know. <laughs> um, and realize it's okay to be comfortable. You don't have to sit in some pretzel-like pose, you know, and, and feel miserable. Um, you can sit on the couch. You can sit in a chair, however it seems right to you. It's also fine not to close your eyes if you feel uncomfortable in some way about that. You can keep your eyes open. See if you could, you know, not have like the radio going or, you know, obvious distractions happening and resolve not to pick up your phone for five minutes. Um, and then, uh, you know, the critical thing I always feel for people is that we have some understanding of what to expect and what not to expect. Like so many people say to me, I failed at it. I tried it and I failed at it. And I say, well, why do you think you fail? Because we believe you cannot fail at meditation. You can't be having the wrong experience. It might be a challenging experience, but everything in meditation depends on how we are relating to what's going on, not on what's going on. So you might be sleepy. You might be rest restless. You might have tons of thoughts. It could be good meditation because you're approaching all of that with some awareness and balance and, and kindness towards yourself and so on. So a lot of people will say, well, I failed at it because I couldn't make my mind blank or I couldn't stop all my thinking or I couldn't have only peace. And we say, well, we don't believe that the goal of meditation is to make your mind blank or to stop all thinking or to have only peaceful feeling, we believe the goal of meditation is to relate differently to what's going on, uh, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And that we can do because, you know, we can't say, well, no more sleepiness. It's gone now forever. Um, we don't have that kind of control, but we could keep approaching the sleepiness differently. And so uh, you cannot fail at it. And I think, that's a really important lesson to try to reinforce for yourself before you start. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I need to do the walking meditation because I live in a town that's a third conservation land. I'm out in the woods every single day. I've got two dogs that absolutely love it. And after this interview, I'm going to be headed out and I'm always listening to a podcast. But I think I'm going to just take in the nature because it's just stunning. And I, I feel like I'm taking it in, but obviously I'm not. I'm doing that partial attention. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, we, we all tend to, and it's more or less detrimental. It's like I was walking down the street in New York City, and uh, someone coming from the opposite direction was texting, and he barged right into me. And I thought, oh, it's not just like in a cartoon, you know? It's like <laughs> it really happens, you know, so... I mean, I don't think it's so serious if you're listening to a podcast as you're walking along, but uh, it can be great. But at the same time, you know, we are missing a lot. And at least some of the time, it would be lovely to really take in where we are uh, because it doesn't last. You know, nothing lasts and, and we've missed it. Yeah, that is so true. And there there's so much beauty out there. I went with a friend the other day and it was her first time and 
we were talking a little bit, but we were really taking it in. And it was really lovely. Speaking of lovely, Sharon, you're lovely. Your work is lovely. The book is Sharon Salzberg, Real Happiness, a 28-day program to realize the power of meditation. If me and my monkey mind can do it, so can you. Sharon, tell us all the ways to find you and your wonderful books. Oh, well, my website is SharonSalzberg.com. It's S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. And there'll be links on there uh, to find the book. Well, thank you for spending this time with us. I really appreciate it. Everybody, please go rate, review, subscribe, never miss an episode. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.